0: okay have you talked to anybody yet today no let's get right to greg copeland at the breaking
1: news desk greg what do we know right now yeah it was uh mark it was march of 2009 that Moyer disappeared from her tonino area home
0: i've talked to sam and bill already uh they made an arrest last night then that case went cold police have had no luck solving it Tonight, though, things have changed a bit. Uh, We
1: have some new information. Word of a search outside of uh, Tonino. The Thurston County Sheriff's Office is uh, leading this investigation. But they got a new tip yesterday that led to this search. Uh, The case had gotten some national attention recently through the Real Crime podcast uh, on
0: the 10th anniversary, which was back in March. They arrested Eric Roberts. Who's that? Eric was a guy who lived three doors down from Nancy's house. Oh, my
2: God. Good morning, I'm John Snaza, Thurston County Sheriff. The first thing I want to really stress is that this is an ongoing investigation. On March 11th, 2009, Thurston County Sheriff's Office took over the investigation. Through the investigation, it was learned that uh, Nancy Morrier's disappearance was presumed that she that she'd encountered something that was very horrible, and we believe that she was deceased. Now, over the years, this this case has grown very cold. In late 2018, early 2019, this case garnered national attention due to True Crime Podcast. On July 9th of 2019, we received information which led Thurston County Sheriff's Office to the 16,500 block of Sheldon Lane Southwest located in Rochester, Washington. She's wrong, like a pagan. Searching search of places that I would never go. Destroy borders, the fendless walls.
1: But ain't no rock to stop me from getting through.
0: Hey guys, Um, obviously you're aware that there was an arrest made for Nancy's disappearance and uh, this gentleman goes by the name of Eric Lee Roberts. Uh, I've got a ton of questions from people asking if I knew Eric, uh, if he was on the podcast previously and if this possibly was a gentleman who contacted uh, me for the Q&A session from New Orleans and I'm looking forward to answering your guys' questions today. Now, I want to address the call from... The gentleman from New Orleans. It's not Eric, and I know this for a fact. And I know it's a very bizarre situation where this person does say Roberts instead of Bernard, which is the name that they intended to say. Now, the next thing I want to address and answer is Was Eric ever addressed in my previous episodes? No, he was not, and there's a reason for it. I'll get a little bit more into that, but. Uh, He was not addressed. He was not known as Mark or any other names that I used for someone's personal privacy. But do know that my intentions were to contact Eric because he was a person that I was aware of and knew about. So that's the next thing that I do want to address. Early on in my investigation, when I spoke to Ben Elkins, um, Eric's name was brought up as a person of interest, specifically because when he had told Detective Haller what his relationship was with Nancy, that was very different from the informant that came forward and shared that Eric was saying that he did have a romantic relationship with her. Now. I feel like it's important for me to point out that I know my role in all of this. Obviously, I don't have the power to make an arrest or charge someone for murder. So it would have been very irresponsible for me to put that information on the podcast. Now, Ben Elkins wasn't the only person to bring up Eric's name to me. So when I heard this from the second individual, that raised some more red flags for me. I'm going to share with you a short clip of my conversation with Sharon Wilbur, Nancy's sister. She was the second individual to bring up Eric's name to me.
3: I don't really have anything to add um, to what I heard and what the detectives, the detectives have told me what similar to what you said, what he's denied and um, what he has said when they've questioned him. There are some discrepancies also, Aaron, I believe it's Huntley. His uncle, I believe lived two doors down from Nancy and Bill's house. And I found out later nights after people were in bed, she told me she would sneak over to see him at night so as for him denying he knew or not remembering if she was married i find that hard to believe but
0: so aaron huntley she would sneak over to see aaron huntley at his uncle's house
3: yes his uncle lived uh had a house two doors down from nancy and bill two or three doors down i believe it was two doors down but she had told me pointed out uh where he lived and said that's aaron's uncle's house and i sneak out at night and meet him over there
0: Do you know if the uncle still lives there?
3: I have no idea.
0: So since this was the second time that I had heard about Eric Roberts' name, I wanted to ask Aaron Huntley if he was aware that Nancy said that they had met up over at Eric's house. And Aaron's response was that he never remembered hooking up or meeting up with Nancy over at Eric's house. When this information was shared with Detective Haller, On May 26, 2009, Detective Haller contacted and interviewed Eric Roberts at his residence. Detective Haller asked Roberts if he was aware of the reports that had been made about Nancy hooking up with Aaron at his house. And Roberts explained how he was a single father raising two children and no one was allowed at his home for that kind of activity referring to Nancy and Aaron meeting at his residence for sexual relationship. Now, one of the things that I have found out is that Eric would actually have parties at his house and people would come over. They would drink, barbecue, play music, and basically camp in his backyard. Now, I'm not trying to insinuate that that kind of activity did happen, but it would be hard for me to believe that it didn't. And in my last trip to to Tenino, one of the things I wanted to do was to go with Aaron to Eric's house just to stop in and see what Eric's response was to me being the podcaster who's doing this investigation on Nancy's story. Unfortunately, one of my interviews went longer than I expected, so we ran out of time. But I do know that Eric knew I had his number, and that I did want to speak with him at some point in time. I'm also aware that Aaron has shared with me that his family has been listening to the podcast. Whether Eric was listening to the podcast, I can't talk about that yet. Now, one thing I do want to talk about is where we're at today with Eric and his arrest. I had the chance to sit down and have a conversation with Mickey Hamilton. I asked Mickey where we were at today with Eric. So
4: they held him on probable cause originally based on the statements that he made. But then they, the prosecutor elected not to file murder charges until they get more of the
5: test results back The thing for things we sent to the lab. Okay. Through the course of the search
4: warrant, we found some firearms that to us looked questionable. So we called the ATF because they're the experts on firearms and said, hey, we're not sure about these guns if you want to come and look at them. ATF came and looked at him and said, yeah, they look like they're probably prohibited weapons to us, so the ATF then took him into federal custody at that point. I can only assume from what I've heard from the media that something changed in that, because I know that he was released out of federal custody
5: yesterday,
4: a couple of days ago maybe, and then he had an outstanding warrant from Snohomish County, and some of the federal authorities turned him over to Snohomish County and... Then he was booked on his warrant there.
0: And that's where he's at now?
4: As far as I know, that's where he's at now. We kind of lost track of him once we turned him over to federal custody because we don't have any control over what the federal government does.
0: And kind of just correct me if I'm wrong with what what I think is happening is the prosecutor doesn't want to go forward with the charges because if we don't have circumstantial evidence to take this to court. We don't want to go and risk, you know, rushing this and there being that double jeopardy rule. Correct. Well, the double
4: jeopardy and also there's a legal standard of corpus delecti, which is just boils down to anytime somebody confesses to a crime, there has to be some evidence to link them to that or corroborate their confession. And so you can't just arrest somebody and charge them just solely based on their confession. So we have a lot of evidence in this case to go through. We have to send it to the lab and wait for those lab results to come back. Um, once he's charged, that starts a clock on his court proceedings because he has a constitutional right to a speedy trial. And that is 60 days if he doesn't waive his right to a speedy trial. And based on, you know, however long it might take us to get these lab results back and go through all the evidence and decide what it means, the prosecutor's office didn't want to start that clock and, paint themselves into a time frame because then the double jeopardy comes into play because if we do have to go to trial in 60 days we're not ready and he's found not guilty then we can't do it we can't retry him or do anything about it that's the end of it so that's kind of the reason that that's the way it is
0: we didn't know whether or not he was going to waive his rights and usually from what i understand is that most the time most times they usually waive the rights so the defense can build a better case and and the defense situation i feel like from just where I'm sitting, is that there was lean, they were going to probably lean towards waiving that, knowing that there was going to have to be some DNA testing, and you know we're kind of up, a, you know, against a timeline with only submitting five items at a time, like you had said in episode nine. Do you do you strongly feel that he would have waived, they would have waived their uh, the right to a speedy trial, or do you think that they would have said let's push forward in sixty days? I
4: have no idea what his, you know, I can't pretend to think like a defense attorney, so. I have no idea what they would do, but it's just one of those factors that was a factor in the decision that the prosecutor made. The prosecutor has to plan for a worst case scenario, so, any you know, that's kind of where, where
0: they go with it. I guess the way I feel after my conversation with Mickey and knowing all the uh, facts about the case and Eric's arrest and where we're at today, we just need to hurry up and wait. Now, while we're in that process, I wanted to reach out to someone who is a DNA analyst and is a professional when it comes to this kind of stuff.
1: How is Dr. Miller calling
0: you back? Hey, Dr. Miller, how are you? Dr. Miller has a Ph.D. in biochemistry, and his area of expertise is criminalistics and DNA. Dr. Miller has been accepted as an expert in military, federal, uh, district, state, civil, family, immigration, and international courts. So, obviously, I want to kind of catch up real quick with my case. I gave Dr. Miller a quick rundown of what we're dealing with, so I'll spare you on catching him up. Okay, so in a typical
1: cremation chamber, the temperature's going to get, you know, like fourteen to 1,800 Fahrenheit. Okay, so it gets really hot. That will destroy all the DNA, provided that the body's left in there long enough. So whatever period of time that is, depending on the size of the body. Uh, the last place that you usually will find DNA is in the tooth pulp, inside the tooth. It's kind of protected by the bone and, and the enamel, and it, for whatever reason, doesn't quite get as hot, so it has to remain for longer. Uh, when they're done cremating, there's really just metal left, right? The the uh, calcium in the bones, that's a metal. And so it's just metal and ash is really all that's left. So if you actually cremate somebody in a cremation chamber, there's nothing left. There's no DNA. If you burn someone on a fire, I mean, anything that really doesn't get substantially hot has potential to, to continue to survive. But if I take DNA, you know, and I... I i put it in you know i got blood or something i put it in a freezer in a ziploc bag and it's dry it's going to be good for several hundred years if i take you know that same blood stained rag and i throw it underneath um a bed in an air-conditioned house so it doesn't get any sunlight any moisture any anything it's good for 100 years okay. so the dna itself is pretty stable the question is, does it get any moisture, temperature, you know, heat, cold cycles, chemicals, anything like that will cause DNA to degrade. So if you get it hot on a fire, it just depends. I mean, you could keep it for just 100 degrees or 200 degrees and it would slowly degrade. You know, if you just had a warm fire pit. So really, it just, it comes down to how thoroughly have you destroyed it, right? How well did you burn the body? Because the teeth and that stuff, you're not likely to think, well, I need to keep that on the fire an extra period of time. Unless you reduce that body to ashes and metal like you would find in a cremation chamber, there's still likely to be DNA left. But if you then bury the body or whatever... The microbes in the soil, the water, the heat, the temperature will also slowly degrade the body. The body basically will turn itself to, to liquid, liquefies itself. If you have a dead body in a house, within a day it starts liquefying. And so everything doesn't completely liquefy, right? There's skin and there's tissue and there's other things that kind of mummify and dry out. So, I mean, it depends on temperature and moisture and all these other things, but a great deal of the body will remove the liquid that way. It basically dissolves itself in many ways though not completely everything doesn't like there's really no tissue or anything for example up in the teeth and so that really is kind of protected because the rest of the blood and everything isn't breaking down the tissue itself breaks itself down once you bury it you have microbes and liquid and moisture and temperature that also break
0: it down okay because i think in this situation what what he claims to have done is as soon as he found out that she'd you know she had died he put her in the fire and so, how challenging is it for somebody to get that temperature to that degree by a fire pit? It's not a controlled atmosphere where
1: well, I mean you wouldn't if you think of the body as as sort of a piece of meat, a steak, you could cook that long enough that it would turn to ash, bones. so it just depends on the size of the body of the bones the bones will will not burn the same way, but they'll kind of be reduced to the metal. They won't look like bone anymore i mean there's there's calcium and there's there's you know other things that are bones are made of. And so it will be the framework of the bone will still be there. You'll be able to see that it was a bone, but if you leave it on there long enough, it will burn. So it's just strictly how hot did you get the fire? And if you didn't even get the fire that hot, a stake will still slowly burn over time, right? Just like a log. If you get it hotter, it burns faster and is destroyed quicker. But if you leave it on there just kind of with a simmering heat, it will burn all the way down all the time. So mm. it's really an, an issue of the hotter it gets, the sooner the body's going to be burned, but it really is an issue of burning it to completion.
0: And that's what that's what I'm you know for a lot of us who are in involved in this case right now is if he burns the body and then it's there for 10 years and he's continually burning even if he doesn't reach that degree of you know 1500 if if over the course of 10 years and let's say it's only at 800 degrees would the bones disintegrate to the point where they're ash yeah they would
1: yeah it would slow it would burn it would slow it would slowly burn and so i mean it's, it's like a log that you left in the fire is there any chance it would last for 10 years now yeah. Now, if they took it out and buried it somewhere, you know, there's possibility that, you know, like a tooth or something got wrapped up in a piece of plastic and survived. It stayed dry and out of the, the elements. But if he doesn't, if he just keeps it on that fire for 10 years, then no, there's no chance. Just a body sitting outside for 10 years out in the open wouldn't survive. The DNA wouldn't survive for 10 years. You know, if, I, if I cut somebody or drained all their blood out on my front yard, I probably wouldn't be able to get DNA for more than three or four days with even that much blood at the, and probably not even that long. Because once the soil and the microbes and the water and those things get to it and the sunlight, all those things together just are going to degrade it just in a matter of short time.
0: Okay, if it's, if it's turned to ash, is there any way of identifying that that was a human being and who it was? No. Nor even unless you find a bone or something identifiable would you even be able to know that it was human. So then my next question would be is where he said that this happened was at his house. And so let's say this interaction between him and this individual, there was no blood splatter. There was nothing like that. It was a sexual situation where it gone bad. And if it was on a piece of furniture, and let's say he still has that furniture 10 years later, if the DNA was transferred to this furniture, would it still be there 10 years later? And would it be even more difficult to to still get that profile from Nancy, even though we have hers today, would it still be difficult knowing that there's possibly maybe over 20 to 40 to 50 different people? Well,
1: I mean, if you could find her DNA and you could match it up, it would be good. The truth is, though, it would probably be, like you say, it'd probably have a whole bunch of people. It'd be a mixture. Even if her DNA was there, you wouldn't be able to tell it from from the 100 other people that you might find. But if I like... Bat, you know, or, or or ejaculated onto a chair, and I covered it with a tarp, and it was never touched for ten years, and it was inside an air conditioned environment in the dark. Right? It would be good for a hundred years. The truth is, though, if you're using that piece of furniture, you know, the DNA doesn't just build up and stay there, and you you know check check the history of that by finding Lincoln's DNA on his chair still. So it's just a matter of if it's a sexual assault. The fact that not much DNA likely would have gotten transferred to start out with. The next day, we might be able to go find a semen stain with his DNA and her DNA on it. But even that would be hard because it would be hard to know where on the couch to look, where to swab. It's not like you might find some fluorescence from bodily fluids, but every bodily fluid is going to fluoresce, right? And it'll- 10 years later you know who knows so the chances of the DNA still surviving um, is probably pretty low just because of the fact that everybody sat on it and touched it conceivable manner it's you know just think of it like if I spit on a couch you know 10 years later would it still be there no it wouldn't right just physically it'd get sat on it'd get wiped off Things would get dropped on there, it'd get cleaned, it'd get sat on again. I mean, all these things over 10 years. No, there wouldn't be. it'd be really hard even originally without knowing where the stain was to find it. If you knew right where it was with absolute certainty and it was blood and there were a lot of it, that might survive, right? Because you could still find it and you'd know right where to swab and there's enough DNA there in a large enough spot that some might survive. But that would be in an air-conditioned place where it didn't get any sunlight, any, any... I mean, if it's just a couch that happens to be by a window, it's gone, right? Because it's getting sunlight. Sunlight's going to slowly degrade it. So if it gets any any direct sunlight, if it gets any moisture, any chemicals, or or it gets constantly touched, it's going to be wiped away or degraded. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody bled or something, then that's
0: different. Okay. Now, if it was her clothing... That was kept, and let's say it was in a basement, so let's assume it's not air conditioned, but it's a cooler environment. Would that, or would her DNA, and again, no one's touched it besides possibly this gentleman, you know, it was kept in the basement, the DNA would probably still be there, correct?
1: Well, that one would have, you'd have a good chance, right? Because, I mean, you just never know with a basement, because a lot of times they're kind of dank and moist. Moisture's really bad, too, because microbes live even if you don't see you know like a moss or anything like that right anything like that but the moisture itself even a moist air environment now if it's cool enough and it stays dry and now the sunlight yeah i mean it certainly is is a potential i mean just depends on on where that basement is right because a lot of times in the past they used to store all of the police you know evidence in in like storehouses you know in New York and it gets you know 100 degrees and then it gets freezing and so some of that evidence when they go back to the cold case the DNA is just degraded because of the conditions that they stored it under and they didn't know any better at the time now they store all that stuff in, in cool dry environments but it's also dry, and a basement is, is possibly not nearly as dry. That'd be the only drawback. But something like panties would be far better than pants, because anything that has a fluid on it, which panties have the opportunity to have a, you know, biological fluid, a vaginal fluid, which continually does leak out slowly and gets onto panties, that might be good for an extended period of time. If his semen's on those, it, it, you could very well find that as well. And The pants, you know, maybe around the waistband and places where it, it, there was friction and pressure against the body. So it's kind of like microscopically scraping skin cells off. Probably not like the inside of the legs where there's just light touching. and There's probably not a lot of DNA transfer to start out with. Shirts are sometimes good, particularly under the armpits where there's, again, friction, pressure, moisture. And you see that I come back to those two terms or those terms regularly with almost any scenario. So a bra, that's another thing. There's a significant amount of friction. There's pressure, there's moisture, particularly around the bra straps. You know, those are good kinds of places. If, if there's clothing and there is a chance, those are the spots where the most DNA will reside.
0: This gentleman claims that this gal got into his vehicle. And again, 10 years later, what's your professional opinion on this vehicle, which has now been used by other individuals and, and, and other families have used this car? You're, In your professional there's opinion, there. there's nothing there?
1: There's, there's absolutely nothing there.
0: Okay, because you don't have the controlled environment where it's consistently air-conditioned and you got sun that's hitting the windows. Which
1: Well, right, but anything she would have touched, everybody else would have touched. And so imagine that I have a little dust on my hands and I, I, I leave it on the counter. Well, if you go touch that, you're going to wipe some of mine off and leave some of yours. So maybe through one or two touchings, mine might survive. But anything like a door handle or anything like that is going to be a touch a million times. If you just imagine instead that it's a little bit of dust on your hand, is there any chance that dust survived over 10 years with on something that everybody touches, and the answer is just no. Now, I mean, if she got stabbed and bled in the car, and you could find some underneath the mat, right. maybe, but cars also sit out in the sun, in the right. direct sun, in the heat. Right. And so, while sometimes they are in a cool, dry environment in, in the garage, but even in a garage, they're in the heat. So they're subjected to the heat and the cold, plus all that DNA would be wiped off. I mean, even if she, she bled in the car, unless there was a significant amount, your chances of finding something in there 10 years later through a car that's been continually used is zero.
0: The other theory that I'm kind of working on is if this crime happened at her house in her bed, and that I do know uh, the bed sheets were collected and are at the state state crime lab in Washington State. That would be a strong. I mean, from his. If his body's on the bed and his, uh, and they're having a sexual relationship and that would be a strong possibility of his DNA still being on there since it's been con- you know, in a controlled environment for this long, correct?
1: Correct. Now, I mean, if they had a previous uh, relationship of any kind, though, you wouldn't be able to tell when that happened. But if he said, hey, I never knew the girl or I never slept with her or anything of that nature, then finding his semen or even his DNA on that, that sheet would would be probative. Uh, semen would, would, would be much easier to find than skin cells. Because again, with skin cells, there's no way to find them. There's no way to know where they are, right? And so you'd just be swabbing random places on the bed. Well, let's try the middle. let's try over here. Right, with semen you can actually put it under an alternate light source, which is kind of like a black light, uh, like 520 nanometer light. And um, biological stains fluoresce, and, and semen fluoresces quite brightly. So if there's a semen stain on a blanket you can, or a sheet or something like that, you can find it under a black light, and then you just mark it, cut a little piece out. If you find some semen and the DNA and it is, his. then that's absolute certainty that his semen is there because you can visualize the sperm. So if you visualize a bunch of sperm, you get a male DNA profile, you can say without with absolute certainty that that male has ejaculate, ejaculatory fluid, fluid right there. So she, she would be an excellent one if they thought that it happened there, and they and they thought there was a semen stain. If you're looking for skin cells on that sheet, I mean, unless he stays there, or you think he was there for some period of time, you know, um, it would be really hard to find skin cells.
0: Anything from wine glasses for DNA testing? They did test for latent prints, but if the, the wine glasses were also collected and, and kept in stores for evidence, anything on wine glasses at this point? Oh, sure. I mean, saliva is an exceptionally good
1: source of DNA, and with glasses, bottles anything you put your mouth on I mean saliva like semen and blood is just it's like liquid DNA it just it just has huge quantities compared to skin cells the other thing about a glass is you know right where to swab you know right where that DNA likely is right around the rim now you can also do it down around the the glass you know the handle or wherever it might be held but where the mouth but then you're looking for skin cells you know the mouth and saliva have a significant amount of, uh, of DNA and depending on the storage conditions right I mean is this stored in a warehouse out you know, where it gets heat and temperature cycles, or is it indoor where state air conditioned like they keep things nowadays. Storing it and, and collecting it is, is a great, but then if it's not stored in the right conditions, it's still going to slowly degrade over time.
0: Okay, even so let's say this gentleman wiped the glass down because when they test for latent prints, they didn't find anything, but if he was at her house the night that she went missing, which he claimed he was... To pick her up, if it happened there, if he had wiped the the glass down but didn't wash it, would his saliva still be on the glass?
1: It might be. It'd more likely be on the inside of the rim, right? Because you put your lips there and and, and everything. And there might still be some on the outside because, you know, you might not clean it. If you clean it, you clean the DNA off. You know, it just depends on how well you clean. But but anything that you don't clean then then has saliva still on it. So the inside of the rim, I mean, you don't really touch that nearly as much with your mouth, but it certainly has the potential to get DNA and is unlikely to be just wiped down if somebody wipes it. The other thing with saliva, unless you wipe it really good, you're not going to wipe it off of that rim. I mean, we don't need that much. You only need two or three cells to get a DNA profile nowadays. I mean, the the and I've seen a, a, at least a partial DNA profile. Profile from the equivalent of one cell so we don't need a lot and considering if you put his mouth on there and you know let's just say you lick your way around the lip rim there's got to be 10,000 cells there so putting your mouth on it I mean usually if you wipe it off for fingerprints or something like that you would more wipe something around you're not like trying to clean it I mean it just it just depends on what's there it depends on, on the cleaning
0: after my conversation with dr. Miller I don't know if I feel down or optimistic about what he had to say It almost feels like all the things that you see on TV, whether it's movies, documentaries, you have a strong possibility of gathering some sort of DNA that provides the evidence that we need. I'll cross my fingers and hope that Mickey and his team from the state forensic lab can find something that can link Eric to Nancy if he is responsible. Where I want to go next is with Bev Poston. I had a conversation with Bev at the courthouse, and I feel like it's something that you guys need to hear about already aware of who who he was? Did you have a personal friendship with him at all?
5: I had no idea who he was. I knew him by sight and he was in the building. But no, I didn't know him at all. Gosh, I want to say maybe the fourth or the fifth search that we had done. We were searching every weekend. He showed up at one of the searches. I always uh, had an area marked out. I handed out maps to the folks who came searching. And so this is the area we're going to concentrate on this time. So he showed up, and he asked a lot of questions about, you know, what what we were doing, how was I figuring out where to go, where had we been. He told me that he was a friend of the family. I just made an assumption that he was a friend of Nancy and, and Bill. Didn't ask any questions. I probably should have, but I just didn't think of it at the time. I wanted to get folks out on the road and so that we could start looking.
0: So obviously we can say that that's not the truth. Eric didn't have any kind of relationship to the family, nor did the family ask Eric to participate or relay information about what was happening during these searches or where they were searching. But that's not even the most odd part about the situation. What happens next is even more bizarre.
5: I wasn't interested in getting an assignment, so I wanted folks in pairs and he didn't pair up with anybody who wasn't interested. And so after asking questions and so forth, he just got in his car and he left. And I was so surprised that I'm thinking, I don't know who this guy is, but why in the world did you leave? This makes no sense unless you're, you know, just being snoopy. It, it just didn't make sense to me.
0: Fortunately, it wasn't just Bev who had noticed Eric's presence or his odd behavior.
5: And uh, one of our searchers, Kim, whom I, I know that you have talked to here, Kim Collins, asked me. She came up to me and said, Beth, do you know who that is? I said, I have no clue. And so she told me who he was, that he worked in the building. All I could do was think to myself, and I, I even said out loud to those around me, I don't understand how you could say that you're concerned about someone who's missing come to a search and then take off and not participate in the search. It just It, it just didn't make sense.
0: Bev's right, that doesn't make sense. For Eric to have all these questions and then also say that he's friends with the family, which we know is not true, that's a very odd behavior. And then he doesn't even participate on the search. Now, if I'm speaking from the place of believing that Eric is responsible for Nancy's disappearance, it would make sense that he would show up want to find out where they're searching and the locations they're going, which explains all the questions he asked, but then not have any sincere care or interest in finding Nancy, which is why he got in his vehicle and left. Now Bev's intuition led her to do something else.
5: And so this was on a Saturday. We did most of our searches on Saturdays. So on Monday when we got to work, I want to know where he worked. He was His uh, officer, he was down in our basement of the building. And so I said, Kim, I want you to take me down there because I want to see you know, where he's at. Walked into his work area and I was in the doorway and he looked up and he saw me standing there and I surprised him. I mean, he did have a very nice look on his face, like what in the world? Again, that weird feeling came over me. I thought, why are you surprised? He, he came over to me and I kind of met him halfway inside the room. I said, I just wanted to say thank you for, for coming to one of our search parties. I really appreciate it. Um, I know I had to say something. I couldn't say the reason I came down here is because something is not right. It, it's not leaving me. It's, it, it was bothering me. You bothered me all weekend. I couldn't say that, so I just thanked you for coming. And you said you're welcome, and, and that was pretty much it. I turned around and Kim and I left.
0: One of the questions that I did ask Bev was when Eric came to the search party gathering, does she remember where she was organizing people to go search that day? Unfortunately, she doesn't. Now remember, Bev led lots of searches and searched a lot of land. But she does recall one specific search that I found to be very interesting.
5: So I decided I was going to focus on the searches and let police do their work. My goal was to find Nancy, and that's pretty much where I left things. I do know do know that we did go out. One of the searches we did, and this is one that I went on personally, was by his house, was near his house. And it was yeah. near Nancy's and Bill's house in that area. But, you know, you need to have permission to go on private property. And, you know, if, if somebody's not home, you can't get permission. So we, that's the one thing that, that I really stressed. We could have been arrested for trespass.
0: Bev and I talked for quite a while, and one of the things I want to say about Bev is that she feels almost guilty at times processing all of this now. Hindsight 2020. it's easy to kind of say, well, why didn't you say this, or why didn't you talk about this, or why didn't you search over here, you know, but... At that time, Bev had so much on her plate organizing with the search parties, and she did a tremendous amount of work looking for Nancy and organizing the search parties. And she also helped putting on fundraisers for the girls, knowing that Bill probably needed the financial support. You know, Bev already had one person of interest with Jim Roth, which she came forward and spoke about, but Bev can only do so much and like I told her, you haven't had any professional training and nor have I. And that's something that I've constantly thought about during this process is, have I missed something? And what I would say is almost everybody did, you know, Sharon brought up Eric, the informant brought up Eric, but there were very, very few people that actually knew about Eric and him possibly being a suspect or let alone a person of interest. I wanted to check in with one of my good friends and partners in this, Dr. Maurice Godwin. During the live podcast at CrimeCon, he dove a little bit into the profile, but I wanted him to share the entire thing with you guys.
2: This is Dr. Godwin. Welcome to the Hide and Seek Podcast. I'm going to introduce my offender criminal profile This criminal profile was developed before Eric Roberts was uh, charged or before he was even known. This was developed and discussed in depth at the uh, Crime Com in New Orleans. It's important for me to point out that I had no case records or case files uh, or anything. This profile was based solely on information that I had learned by working with James uh, and by also visiting Nancy's house and reading over news articles about the case. And and so th- this is the profile that I discussed uh, at the uh, Crime.com and that I'm going to discuss here more in depth. And I named this, this potential offender, and I used the word potential because at the time this profile was originally uh, put forward and discussed, nobody was in custody. We had no idea who had committed this crime. I named this uh, an effective object killer. Effective object killer, and I used to describe this individual as a disorganized killer versus organized. Disorganized in their their crime scene behavior and disorganized in their their home life. And since uh, the arrest has been made, I found out that uh, that he was uh, his house was in foreclosure. He was losing his car and he had m- multiple jobs. He-, he was being fired from different, various type of jobs. I said uh, at CrimeCom that he would be working in menial jobs. His unemployment would be spot- spotty, meaning jumping around from one up- job to another. I also said that the individual who committed this crime would have a low self-awareness. Now, what low self-awareness means is that he, had- he would have trouble maintaining his cool. In other words, he would have trouble maintaining his his temper. He would likely get mad easily and vent his rage easily on women, so therefore he was likely have he would have uh, charges or convictions of domestic violence, and he would have also a personal attachment that would where you would see close-up and personal things done to the victim, such as blunt, tra- blunt force trauma to the head or to the facial, or to the neck area, and his, his crimes would be fully raged. Revenge and rage, you would see heavy beating to the victim. I predicted that Defender would be a white male, average age would be 31. Now this, this age was an age that I put back 10 years ago, so that would place him like 41, and, but I said between 31 and if, 35 and he was actually five years older than my uh my age prediction said that was the one area that i was uh off on Uh, i said that he would be sex related crimes he would consume pornography and that he would be be involved in sexual fetishes and all this seems to be true from what i'm hearing he is a sexual deviant and this is what I'm being told. I also said that he his uh, other behaviors would be he would be into weapons and guns, and we see that he is that he has several gun charges that are pending, uh, or he's being charged with those federally. This type of killer has some signature behaviors too that are related to him. The way he carries out his crimes would be a blitz attack a sudden blitz attack, the use of a ligatier, the use of sex-related objects inserted in the victim, bite marks, leaving bite marks on the victim or bludgeoning the victim to death these are some signature behaviors that this vendor would would use on his victim getting a little bit more in depth with this uh this overall profile that i provided to the team at uh Crime Comp, and also re- provided it to the hide and seek show before there was any suspect ever in this case the effective object theme has a crime scene where the offender seems to exert power over his victims for example the offender may feel a sense of failure and his emotional rage may be, may thirst him into a, a murderous assault the control of the offender initially leads to the crime scene appearing organized in the initial encounter but as the crime proceeds The offender's actions become organized in the initial encounter, but as the crime proceeds, the offender's actions become unstructured, which is disorganized. Hence, the offender's actions are ultimately effective. Effective object theme reveals a killer who is expressive rage, but one who has a personal attachment to the victim, and one who is sadistic toward his victim. Also, the fact that the killer bites or bludgeoned his victims to death suggests that the crime is one of rage. The victims in the uh, effective object theme are more likely to be invested with a symbolic importance by the, this type of killer. The killer may see in others distorted representations of their early traumatic relations. For example, the defender may have a low opinion of women, Therefore, the, uh, the offender abducts and kills his victims for wrongs he believes women have done to him and takes out his rage and anger in the form of excessive blunt trauma to the victim's bodies. So he he's expressing his rage onto his victim for wrongs that he believes that women, women have done to him in the past. Now, it doesn't matter if, if this is true or if it's just a fantasy. These six crime scene variables that I mentioned describe actions which appear to indicate that the offender probably has an attachment to his victim as an object, an object just to abuse, to use. For example, behaviors that indicate personal attachment to the victim are bite marks and object found inserted. These actions show the offender's callous disinterest in the victim as an actual person. The focus is on degradation of the victim's body. That is, the body has a personal symbolic significance to the offender. Even so, the crime remains effective, as some variables uh, indicate that the offender is less than forensically aware. For example, he may leave an object inserted and bite marks on the victim, which could lead to evidence uh, that the police can link it back to him. The emotional component of the uh, effective object theme also manifests itself by the victim being blitz attacked. A rage component in the AO theme is possibly revealed by the victim being bludgeoned to death. Excessive blunt trauma, usually in the face area, possibly indicates that the victim knew her attacker. The variable bludgeon and blitz, blitz suggest that the defender whose method of approach is blitz attack are more likely to kill their victims by bludgeoning them to death. There are two distinct methods of killing the victim found in the effective object theme killer. This, is, this first is, is the use of a gun, which is an impersonal method of killing because injury can be accomplished while maintaining a distance from the victim. The second method of uh, death is personal, where the offender has a more of a contact with his victim. For example, ligature strangulation, which requires more involvement and time spent with the victim, often a slower f- method of death. A personal attachment variable that suggests that the victim is, is used as an object to be exploited is evidence of a foreign object being inserted in the body cavities foreign object has a higher association with bludgeoning than does it with any other crime scene action. Some literature on the serial murder suggests that in certain objects, in the victim is a form of degradation. The act could be considered a form of rage against the victim. The uh, effective object theme seems to reveal a killer whose desire is expressive rage, but one that has a personal focus toward the victim. In this sense, the victim may hold a symbolic importance for the killer. The killer assigns the victim more of an active and brutal role in the violent drama. Similar behaviors have been found in anger retaliatory rapists as signature serial killers, where victims are blitz-attacked and their rapes and murders involve little planning. So basically you have a general profile there that helps law enforcement Look at an individual when they when they arrest somebody and they look at this individual. Does this individual fit this type of profile? Does he fit characteristics of this type of profile? And it seems to be examining some of the behaviors and, and talking to some people after Eric Roberts' arrest, that he does indeed fit the profile as the killer of Nancy Moyer.
0: I want to say thanks to Dr. Godwin for... Thoroughly explaining the profile and the characteristics and breaking all that down for us. Now, since Eric's arrest, I've had the chance to meet with the family. I didn't get a chance to meet with Sharon face-to-face, but I was able to have a phone call with her. You know, you found out Eric Roberts was arrested. Do you remember who shared that with you?
3: Um, Bill called me and told me about it.
0: Okay. What were your first initial thoughts knowing it was Eric Roberts?
3: I was pretty stunned that... I hadn't figured that he knew her that well. I mean, obviously, I knew she had had interaction with him in the past, but I never saw him necessarily as someone that could have been the main person of interest necessarily.
0: I mean, I went back to our original conversation during our first interview, and of course, the topic that we discussed was Nancy had confided to you and told you that she would go over to Eric's house, but it was to see Aaron, not Eric. And Aaron had said he did not recall remember ever seeing or or meeting with Nancy there to hook up. And that was kind of surprising because you think you would remember that. Do you think that there's any possibility that Nancy was really speaking about Eric, but kind of didn't really want to say that it was Eric because the relationship with Aaron
3: I don't think she really had any reason to bring him into it if it didn't have anything to do with Aaron. She didn't even tell me the name. I don't think she just told me his uncle lived a few doors down from them. But she never talked about him at all. Like she only was adamant that she and Aaron met up there. So I don't I don't think she was covering for him.
0: Right. And and why I kind of thought that, you know, for a little while, was just kind of thinking if that was the case is just because she, you know, Eric was a little older than she was. And I just didn't know if it was something that she was kind of like wanting to tell somebody or share that with somebody, but didn't want to tell the whole truth. But it can be completely wrong. It could have been Aaron. And, you know, that's just me speculating or kind of trying to play with all these ideas and theories. Now, she obviously never talked to you about Eric either, because you would have said, right. you know, Eric was... a person she was seeing. So have you had a chance to read the probable cause report in his confession and everything?
3: I read through the report. I mean, the only thing that stands out to me was that it was accidental. I remember reading that.
0: You know, what stuck out to me about his confession is is obviously he changed his confession um, as soon as they turned the recorder off. I mean, knowing that Eric is has been somebody that you brought up to Thurston County's attention, Detective Haller. I mean, am I right when I say that, that you actually brought up his name before really anybody else's?
5: Yeah, the first names,
3: well, I don't remember the order. He was one of the first ones I brought up. Because obviously the two errands were probably the first part that were brought up by me to Detective Haller. And then I made note of the fact that she had specifically told me that she had gone to his uncle's house to meet with Aaron late at night, which seemed odd. But yeah, I did bring him up to Detective Haller like immediately. He was he was at least the second or third person that came to mind.
0: Yeah, cuz actually says in the report on March, on May 26, 2009, Detective Haller contacted and interviewed Eric Roberts at his house. So I mean, that was relatively very soon after she went missing. What kind of sticks out to me, one of the things I it doesn't really say on the probable cause report is Eric there was a there was a person uh, an informant that came forward that wanted to remain anonymous um because of his strong relationship with Eric. Did they ever share about share that informant and discuss with you guys about this person who came forward sharing this relationship he had with Nancy?
3: No, I never. I never even knew that they'd had a relationship, and I have never heard about the informant until I read the papers recently that there was one that had pointed him out. Also, throughout the last ten years or whenever, like I said, the only thing I had heard. And I believe Bill the same when we talked was that they had talked to Eric Roberts but didn't really see him as a potential suspect or had no reason to question him further. I thought they had let it go completely.
0: What are your I mean given the last almost week and a half where where's your mind at with all of this and do you feel he's the guy even though you know he's now recanted his entire confession and they're now gathering DNA evidence and trying to do as much as they can to find out if there's a real link here. I mean, where's your mind at with all this? How do you feel?
3: I feel like there's definitely a good chance he's the guy. I don't know why he would recant or why he even confessed in the first place. Obviously, we want closure. I still don't know that that's possible until we find her. Hopefully, if he is the guy He's going to fess up and tell us what happened. I, I don't know. I don't know what the, his deal is. It's confusing the whole thing.
0: Do you have any, you know, feelings about knowing that Aaron Huntley is his nephew?
3: Yeah, I was angry. I was angry when I heard that again about Eric Roberts, the uncle, because I feel like there's still stuff that Aaron Huntley isn't fessing up to. I understand he's been questioned and cooperated, but I don't feel like he's telling the truth, and I never felt like he was telling the entire truth. So I'm still upset with him. I I think there's more to it that we don't know, or that he's not saying. I honestly don't think he was probably involved. I don't know. I would like to think, I guess, because of Nancy's feelings for him, too. That he wasn't involved, but I think he's not telling the full story. I honestly don't know how much further it goes than that, but I don't think he's told the 100% truth on everything.
0: Are you familiar at all with who the informant is that came forward?
3: No, I have no idea.
0: How are you doing with all this?
3: I'm doing all right. It's been a shock, the whole thing. It just kind of, well, you know, came out of left field like. There's just been a lot going on, kind of bringing it all back again. I mean, you want closure, it's a happy medium, because it's like, you want closure, but then it's like, you almost don't want to know part of you, you know? I just, I don't know. I mean, everyone's like, well, it's pretty obvious, you know, he must have done it, and, you know, now you know, and it's like, But I don't. Like, people don't get it. Like, until we find evidence or find her, like, there's still part of me that's like, what if he's just lying and he's crazy and he's just torturing us for no reason? I don't know why he would. Like, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, to go through this for no reason is not fair.
0: You've been dealing with this for 10 years now, over 10 years. As far as the people, though, who are online in social media, and I made the video for a reason, but people are kind of left and right with their theories and speculations. I mean, if you could have one message for the people that are tuning in, which is we want the attention for Nancy, which is a good thing, but sometimes it gets a little out of control and people desensitize themselves with the things that they post and say. But if you could say something to them while they're tuning in, which is what we want, but what would be your message to them to to understand it from your perspective as a, as her sister?
6: I just... Wish that
3: they would understand that this isn't just media. It's not a story. It's not just a podcast. She has a 19 year old daughter who's listening, she has parents who are listening. Myself. This is real to us. It's not, there's no reason for speculation. They they didn't know her. They didn't know her family, her circumstances. You're just hurting her family by making making judgment calls because you really are getting one side of the story and not, you know, we appreciate the support, but it, it hurts to hear people as making assumptions about her who don't even know her. You know, let it play out, show your support, but don't assume anything. I mean, that's pretty much it, Um, especially when they say, like, finally, justice. That drives me crazy. Justice for Nancy's family. Thank goodness. Like, to me, there's no justice. Like, what justice have we gotten? You know, we've gotten nothing, (laughs) you know, I mean, honestly, like, except for pain. My parents, like, any hope that they had, like, they've had to face the reality that they're most likely isn't any hope anymore so my parents are suffering so it's been it's been rough you know I was hoping more would come out of it that would make the pain worth it you know at least we'd have closure but we don't even really have that now and I don't know I don't know how it's gonna play out but this is not this is not the ending she deserves or any of us deserve once we have all the and all the evidence that lead us to that conclusion we just don't have that now I thought we did for a minute. We thought we did. There was hope. That's changed again, and now it's almost like we're back at square one. And James, whether he did it or not, he's a monster. I'm sorry, he's a monster. Whether he did it, he's a monster, and if he didn't do it, he is, because look at what he's done and the pain he's caused. It's not a joke. Like, I don't know why he's doing what he's doing if he didn't. I think he did, probably. I don't know why he's, I don't know. He's a monster. And I feel bad for his family. I mean, I'm not going to lie, maybe not Aaron so much. I mean, okay, I don't cut Aaron a lot of slack, I get it. But I was there with Nancy during that time too. So it's hard to cut him any slack and not believe him and trust him.
0: Why do you, I mean, a difficult question to answer, but why in the heck do you think he decided now to confess to this?
3: I have no idea. I mean, unless somehow he got a tip or he knows someone. I I mean I, I don't know I mean obviously the podcast um, there's more pressure more people talking um, maybe he felt something was coming down on him or he got the feeling that he was up next I don't know I'm sure that had to have something to do with it obviously if he was guilty he knew that it was you know closing in you were closing in somebody was looking
0: that's the million dollar question why now why say you're responsible and explain how you did something and then recant it the next day? As I've said before, I don't know 100% whether or not Eric was listening to this podcast, but I want to take a second to say thank you to all of you who have shown your support from day one. And if you've come into the middle of this during the season and shown your support, uh, I think that this isn't just my work in this that's brought the attention. It takes you guys as the listeners who are participating and willing to do your own research on this case, I do feel that there's a strong possibility that the attention that the podcast has created and the awareness of Nancy's case did apply some pressure. How much of it was because of the podcast versus someone's guilt? I don't know, but this is exactly what I had talked about before. Why I did this was because I wanted to apply pressure by sharing someone's story and hopefully the person out there is listening And again, if it's not for you guys listening and participating and sharing your thoughts and theories, there's a strong possibility that the pressure would have never replied. And maybe this would still be a cold case. So I want to again say thank you to all of you who have been showing your support in this entire process. Now, I know with this being my first podcast that, you know, I've gotten some good constructive criticism, whether it's private messages, reviews. I was told early on, don't read the comments, but... For me, I enjoy hearing how you guys feel about the podcast and you can't just read the good ones. You need to read the bad ones. Now I have been asked to consider lots of other cases and um, my response is I'm honored and I appreciate you guys coming to me and sharing these stories, whether it's a family member or friend. I will cross that bridge when I get there, but right now my attention, energy, and focus is going to finish this season and focus on Nancy's case. And once I'm done, I'll take a step back, talk about it with my family, and we'll go forward from there. I had a chance to catch up with Sam and just kind of recap everything that has happened for the last uh, week, week and a half. And I'll tell you now, as I was creating episode 10, things were changing almost every day. So it's been a wild ride for not only all of us, but especially for Sam. Hello. Hey, how are you doing?
6: I'm good. How are
0: you? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Just uh, trying to um, process all of this and kind of collect myself after this kind of long week, I guess you should say. Um, but how about you? How do you feel? I mean, how are you processing everything and and given just this entire week, really?
6: Um, I don't know. It's weird. Um, did did you see that he's his bail dropped to a hundred k?
0: I did. I was able to um, see that. I know that they did that for. I think it's because of the stuff that they collected at his house. I don't know if you, they've kind of explained it why they're doing it, but I did see that the that it was dropped. And you know, bail bonds and how they operate. They only need ten percent to bail you out. How do you how are you feeling? How are you processing this? I mean, for you, I mean, just as kinda of like maybe how I feel, it's an up and down emotional roller coaster for me and you're optimistic. You don't want to get your hopes too high and then be let down. Um, but what about you?
6: Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. It's kind of up and down and I, I really don't know what to think anymore, like if you did it or if you didn't do it just because I mean, he's confessed and everything, but they haven't tested, like, anything else, so we don't know.
0: So, like, right now, if you were to answer, if someone were to ask that question to you, do you think that he is responsible? Your response today would be?
6: I have no idea. Really? Yeah. If you asked me, like, when we did the press conference, I would have, like, said, oh, yeah, I think he's the one. I think he did it.
0: Do why what the part where you're kind of questioning whether or not he did it or didn't do it what part makes you feel like you don't know
6: uh just because they've they haven't really found anything yet or they haven't like tested anything enough to find evidence
0: it would be bizarre to think that he would make up this confession wouldn't you agree
6: yeah i totally agree he seems really guilty and though. Low- Papers are probable cause thing.
0: I mean, why now do you think that he would come forward and confess? And and like you said, if it's the guilt that's weighing in on him, why now?
6: I'm not sure. I think that your podcast definitely has helped. And I I really do feel like he must have heard about the crowd solve or something. Because I think anyone that would like murder someone if there was going to be a bunch of specialists and a bunch of like true crime people that want to figure out a case and figure all this out. If they all came together and looked at every single option that there was, I I feel like he got nervous.
0: Have you, I mean, you lived at that house where your mom and dad bought. How long did you guys live there for?
6: Let me do some math real quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think seven or eight years.
0: Do you ever remember seeing Eric?
6: No, I don't. Really? Yeah.
0: Even, I think Bill said that he he remembers like maybe seeing him drive by, like kind of going to the mailbox or going home. Was it the first time you ever saw him? Was it through the social media and the arrest?
6: Yeah. I mean, I remember like... I remember the house he lived in. I didn't know who lived in it, but I just thought it was like a weird house. All the houses uh, on Sheldon Lane are pretty far back and have like a driveway. Like our driveway was super long. But it's weird because when you're driving on Sheldon Lane, you don't see the front of this house when you pass by. It's like the side of this house. Like this house is sideways or something like that. And it's way far back.
0: If you could say anything to the people on social media in the comments that you're reading, whether they're positive or negative, frustrating, if you could say anything to help with this, what would you say to them?
6: Just be sensitive.
0: And I guess I'll end it with this last question. And I've never asked you this question before. If maybe mom was out there and she was listening, what would you say to her?
6: Um. <laughs> Just that I miss her I don't know I don't think she is
0: <laughs> If mom's looking down from above Listening to you And you can say something to her What would you say to her?
6: And I'm glad she's in a better place Yeah Yeah.
0: I thought for a while if I was going to share this part of my interview with Sam I decided to share this moment of our conversation because I wanted the person responsible to hear the heartache of this young girl and I pray that it does something to you I hope Eric hears this and I hope he feels the weight this young girl and the family I've carried for the last 10 years and Eric you can't confess and then turn around and say I don't know why I said that it's not okay i've had the chance to get to know this family for the last almost year and also meet with them since your confession and i don't want to speak for them but you didn't just open a wound you tore it right open gave them the answers that they've been longing for and snatched it right back and my hope for you eric is that if you are responsible for nancy's disappearance that the weight of this guilt gets heavier and heavier each day and know that we aren't going anywhere you still have the chance to do the right thing today. And by doing so, the healing begins for all parties involved. And that means including yourself, telling us why you said what you said, answer for your actions and explain. And it's the least that you can do for the pain that you have caused this family. Because if it was attention tension that you wanted, you've got it. And I also pray that you realize the pain that you caused your own family. Whether you're responsible for Nancy's disappearance or not, you have drug your own family into this. And now they have to deal with the consequences that you created. Now, during the course of this podcast, I've never shied away from any difficult interview. So you can believe that I won't stop now. So I'm willing to speak with Eric if he's willing. Next time on Hide and Seek. Hey. Hey,
7: James, how you doing?
0: What's new, man? Uh. I mean, obviously, there's obviously been some big developments with recently with the case and wanted to just kind of go over some of that with you. Let's kind of go back to the morning last week and, and, and how everything kind of came about. How did you find out about Eric's arrest?
7: I'd actually gotten a call from his daughter, but I'm going to actually have to put a stop to kind of where we're even thinking we're going with this, James. I just got a call that it's a possibility Eric's being released this afternoon whoa what I just got a call Eric may be released this afternoon
0: okay that's new to me because that that was not what I heard this morning from
7: well this is another prime example of many things James one of them is you know that we no matter what we're thinking or what we're trying to work on or doing everything is subject to change
0: you're saying with him getting out possibly this afternoon is that like i'm not asking for your who's telling you or who where you got that information from but how on a percentage scale how likely is that of happening well another another i mean same type of thing james there's there's no way to know
7: uh, exactly where and i mean which is which is the information to run on or what parts of the story or or need the focus or not um As far as from the phone call I got, I have no reason to believe that Eric won't be released this afternoon. My hope, though, is that all things can change, and that won't be the case. But right now, you know, it's kind of having to run off the information we've got. You have reached the
5: voicemail box of...
0: Eric Roberts.
2: Hey, Eric, this is James Basinger.
0: If you can give me a call back, please, at 509...
2: She's wrong, like a pagan. Search of places that I would never call. Destroy walls, the various bones. But let no rock can stop me from getting through. do